0: The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Westway Christian Church. Glad you're here today. A little bit of 80s music. If you've been watching season three of Stranger Things, five episodes in and there are lots of 80s references, which really makes me happy. Um, if you have your Bible with you today, I would encourage you to open it up to James chapter 3. If you have any questions about our message today, you can, uh, you can send a text to the number that's on the screen, 307-316-2023. And on Tuesdays, we go on to Facebook Live and we answer those questions, talk about a few other things. Um, so on July 27th, 1996... AT&T security guard Richard Jewell was on duty in Atlanta's Centennial Park. This was one of the few free gathering areas during the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. And there were hundreds of people gathered that night for a concert in the park. And as Jewell made the rounds that evening, he noticed a green backpack under a park bench. And he notified a few... uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigation officers that were there, and they began uh, to evacuate people and they called in the bomb squad. And as they were doing that, the bag exploded. In this bag were three pipe bombs that were surrounded by three inch long masonry nails. Alice Hawthorne of Albany, Georgia, was killed when the bomb went off when a nail penetrated her skull. And the Turkish cameraman had a a fatal heart attack while he was running from the scene, and 111 others were wounded. Initially, Richard Jewell was hailed as a hero, but news organizations began to report that he was, in fact, a suspect. One of his previous employers described him as a badge-wearing zealot. And the news media began to label him as a person of interest over the next several weeks. Tom Brokaw of NBC News said this, The speculation is that the FBI is close to making the case. They probably have enough to arrest him right now, probably even enough to prosecute him. But you always want enough to convict him as well. There are still some, hold, some holes in the case The New York Post portrayed him as an aberrant person with a bizarre employment history who was probably guilty of the bombing. The Atlanta Journal and Constitution ran the headline, FBI suspects Hero Guard may have planted bomb. In reference to the Unabomber, Jay Leno called him the Unadoofus, and he was also called Unabubba and Unamama. He was never officially charged, and that didn't prevent the FBI from searching his home twice, investigating his background, and the media took up a 24-7 watch at his apartment. Essentially, they were prisoners in their own home. At one point, the FBI tried to trick him into waiving his constitutional rights by telling him he was participating in a training film about bomb detection. Ninety days later... The U.S. Attorney sent Richard a formal letter clearing him as a suspect. Imagine that, 90 days, three months go by where you are unable to leave your home. In 2005, nine years later, Richard Jewell was completely exonerated when Eric Rudolph pled guilty to not only the Centennial Park bombing, but the bombing of two abortion clinics and a lesbian bar. Despite this, there were still people who believed that Jewell was guilty of the bombing. Richard Jewell died in August of 2007 from a combination of kidney and heart disease and diabetes. It's in your bulletin. I would encourage you, if you have web access, to watch the brief ESPN biography about Richard Jewell. The web link is in there. It's really easy to find. I would really encourage you to watch that. It's only about 20 minutes long, and it digs deeply into what it looks like to be a person who is falsely accused of something. That's what our commandment is is today, Exodus twenty sixteen? You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. On this board up there, it says, do not give false witness. One of the things that we have to understand is our words contain power. James has this to say in James chapter 3, beginning at verse 3. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It's restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, and you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. Our tongues are powerful. James compares it to the bit in the mouth of a horse to a rudder on a ship and to a small spark that can set a forest ablaze. And we've all known people, and maybe some of us are, those people whose entire life has been set on fire because of what's been said because of what someone has said about us, or maybe even what we have said about someone else. And there are times even where the right words said at the wrong time can ruin relationships and reputations, and we've all experienced that, haven't we? I don't know about you, but I am not looking forward to next year's presidential election. People on all sides, on all sides, on both sides, on all sides have just become unhinged, saying whatever they want to say, saying whatever we want to say under the guise, under the pretension of free speech. And as Christians, many of us are going to have to decide sooner rather than later, which kingdom do we want to be a part of? We have to decide which kingdom do we want to be a part of. And I don't mean do we want to be a part of the Republican kingdom or the Democratic kingdom or the Libertarian kingdom or whatever. Do we want to be a part of the kingdom of this world or do we want to be a part of God's kingdom? We have to decide, and many of us should decide sooner rather than later, what we want to be known for. Because regardless of what side we're on politically, whenever we read God's Word, whenever we encounter Jesus, that should generate tension for us. And when we read God's Word and we don't have tension generated then I would submit that we're not paying closely attention to what God is saying to us. We're not allowing him to challenge us. We're putting our own thoughts and our own ideas and our own wisdom above his. I saw this illustration last week. Social media is good for some things. I saw this illustration last week. I have, I have two magnets. And these are pretty strong Magnets. And they perfectly demonstrate what James is talking about here. When when oriented properly, when oriented properly, our tongues have the ability to attract conversation. When properly oriented, our tongues can attract conversation. When we are aware of who we're talking to, when we're kind and loving. And when we see people who are different than us, regardless of, regardless of who they vote for, or the color of the skin, or the language they use, or who they sleep with, or what country they're from, or what sin like they do that's differently of yours, when we, when we see one another and we see other people as made in God's image, and we treat them that way, we will attract conversation. We will earn the right to speak to them in truth and in love. And this this begins here. This begins in the household of faith. Jesus prayed that his believers would be united. Jesus prayed that his believers would be one. And it was this unity that would demonstrate not not only God's love, but it would be a demonstration that Jesus himself had been resurrected. That's kind of a weird statement, but think about it. If we if we don't love one another well, if we don't love one another in an attractive way, do we believe that Jesus has actually been resurrected? Has Jesus actually changed anything in us? So our unity with one another is a demonstration. It's actually proof that Jesus was bodily resurrected. And see, since our faith hinges on the resurrection, then the things that we allow to separate us as believers, we have to set those things aside. Because because the proclamation of the gospel matters more than who is president, matters more than who we vote for, it matters more than the, the style of music we play or how bright or how dim this room is on a Sunday morning. Our proclamation of the gospel matters more than any of those things. And and when these magnets are properly oriented, they attract one another. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 4, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive. Some translations here say seasoned with salt. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you'll have the right response for everyone. Even people who disagree with you, even people with whom you disagree, there is a way to have a right, attractive response to them. And that comes from our, as Christians, from our orientation. Well, Let's flip the orientation of the magnets. With a different orientation, the magnets actually repulse each other. They won't attract each other. And when we refuse to see people as made in God's image, the ones who vote differently than we do, or speak a different language, or have a different color skin, or sin differently than we do, what happens is our tongues repulse them. And I'm not talking about proclaiming the gospel, I'm not talking about not telling them the truth or not saying what Scripture says and being accurate in what we talk about. But for a lot of us, our orientation is like this. A lot of Christians that I see, this is our orientation. And see, when we're in this orientation, they're not going to listen to us. They're not going to hear what we have to say. They're completely uninterested in what we have to say. And it's true, Paul does say not everyone is going to welcome the good news. And that's, that's true. There are going to be some people, there are going to be many people, in fact, that reject the good news of Jesus Christ. But if people reject the news, we want them to reject Jesus I don't want to repulse them. I don't want them to reject Jesus because of the things that I say, the way that I communicate the gospel with people. That's not going to be helpful. That doesn't honor us. And I think there are times as Christians where we where we sort of blame people's rejection of Jesus on Jesus when it's really our fault. Because of the way we are with other people. Well, they just didn't want to hear the truth. They were just completely uninterested. And the question is, we have to ask about our orientation. And I'm not telling you to not have an opinion. I'm not telling you to not have a thought. I'm not telling you to not express your thoughts and feelings. But as Christians, our first and foremost responsibility is the proclamation of the gospel. That is our role. And some of us will never, ever, ever get to the point where we can talk about him because, because the way we speak and the way we speak about what we speak is, is like these magnets. It's just, it's repulsive. Can't even get, can't even get in the door in this, in this situation. What we're going to do is we're going to flip our orientation... We want to be attractive. Well, how do we, how do, we do this? How do we, how do we be attractive in our orientation? What are some things that, that we need to be on the lookout for as Christians? A book that I've been reading for this series, author is Kevin DeYoung. He quotes the Heidelberg Catechism. That might not mean anything to some of you, but I grew up in a Presbyterian church, so I was familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism. It was essentially a, a way to learn about the faith through a series of questions and answers that had been developed over, over time, over history. So the Heidelberg Catechism has this to say about the Ninth Commandment, that I never give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, not join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, in court and in everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices the devil uses, and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it and i should do what i can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name let's talk about a few things from this from this answer this response first never give false testimony so we don't make as christians we don't make false accusations and we don't dogpile on people when others do at the time when this commandment was written people literally faced a death sentence based on the word of witnesses. If you've not seen something firsthand, it's best to not get involved. This is really difficult in our day and age, isn't it? We also want to think about this when we, when we share our own conversion story to Christ, this idea of not giving false testimony. So many times I hear people give a testimony of of what their conversion to Jesus looked like and and what usually happens is it either becomes like a thinly veiled celebration of their past sinfulness. You have probably heard that testimony, right? When someone talks about this is how I came to the Lord, but first they have to tell you all of the bad things that they did with like a little glint in their eye. Or it becomes a, becomes a testimony to themselves over how, in the end, they, like, overcame all of these really bad things. When we share with others how Jesus has changed our life, we want to give him the glory for that. We want to allow him to receive the praise for that. We don't want to live like our past sin were the glory days. We don't want to tell a story in which we are the hero of our own conversion. A few weeks ago I was at I was at high school camp and the the speaker one of the speakers was sharing was sharing her testimony one morning. And as she was talking this really strange feeling hit me. She was talking about how she was converted to Christianity, how she entered into a relationship with Christ. And she talked about like, some of the bad experiences that she had had in her life. And I remember thinking as I was listening to this, wow, I she's telling this story in a way in which I have zero sympathy for her. She has not made herself out to be a sympathetic character in any way, shape, or form. And that sounds really harsh, right? Some of you are like, wow, John, that's really mean. Well, wait till. You then I told her that that night. I went up to her and I said, hey, I want to let you know that this morning when you were sharing your story with me, I, ha- I had zero sympathy for you. Like, I just, I think I had some empathy, but I had no sympathy for your story. And she said, well, I'm really glad to hear that because, see, this morning before I shared my testimony, I praised God that he alone would receive the glory when I shared my testimony. And that's what happened. I didn't feel bad. Sometimes we hear a story and we feel badly for the person. Sometimes people tell their conversion story as though we're supposed to feel bad for them. She was praising God in the midst of her testimony. And it was really, I got to tell you, it was really awkward. Like all day long, I was like, I think I need to tell her that I didn't feel badly for her all day long. And I don't know how that conversation is going to go. But it was, what, it was what she was praying for, that God would receive the glory. So we, we want to give a true testimony of what Jesus has done in our lives and give him the praise for those things. Here's, here's the second thing. We, wanna, we don't want to twist anyone's words. It's easy for us when we're telling a story to leave parts out of what someone else said, isn't it? Isn't it easy for us to put words into their mouth at the same time? This person said this. This person did that. I know that we hate it when politicians do that, when they twist words. We also don't want to add motive to what other people say or do. This is really challenging for me. I will just confess. This is really difficult for me. When I, when I hear people say things to me or I'll get an email or I'll get a text or I'll hear a story, my brain is sort of trained to add motive to what it is. And I wonder, what do they, what do they really mean when they say that? Anyone else like that? What are they really getting at? I wonder what that means. I think it means this. I really struggle with this and and it was only about two months ago, two and a half months ago we were in a staff meeting, and one of our one of our pastors, Mike Andrews, said um, something to the effect of "I try hard not to ascribe motive to people." And I was like, "Wow, that's really good. I need to like work on that." That's really good. To not ascribe motive. That's twisting people's words. There's this scene in 2 Samuel 10 um, where David is, David is king and he hears that the king of the Ammon, Ammonites uh, dies. And he sends people to, give, uh, to, like, to pay homage, homage to the king, to like give his condolences to the, to the king's sons well when the when the people that David sends out when they show up at the Amorites place, the sun is like hey they 're here to they 're here to take us over this whole this whole scene of of wanting to express condolences to me that 's not really what David wants so we 're going to shave off half their beards we 're going to cut the rear end out of their tunic, which I think is humorous, good biblical humor, and then they send. These people away, and David hears about it and he says, Well, wait till your beards grow back. And they do. And then they go in, and the Israelites destroy the Amorites. They kill like 20,000 people. Because this person misrepresented, he ascribed motive to something that wasn't there. I would really challenge you. To stop ascribing motive to what people say and do. If you have a question, radical idea, ask them. Just ask a question and ask them kindly. We don't want to gossip or slander. Gossip is passing along a report or a rumor that cannot be substantiated. Gossip is passing along a true story unnecessarily. And we don't want to gossip and we don't want to listen to gossip. About a year ago I saw someone post something on Facebook that said this. I don't know if it's true, but dot dot dot, and then they shared this story. Listen. If you don't know it's true, don't share it. It's called gossip. It's not not helpful. You're not helping the culture. You're not helping the community when we pass things on like this, that we don't know are true. That's gossip. And here's slander, deliberately passing along what's false. And again, assuming the worst possible motives for other people's intentions and refusing to give people the benefit of the doubt. She didn't do this because she's mad at me. The way he wrote that email, he must be thinking this. Here's another thing we don't want to do. We don't want to join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. We don't want to dogpile. This is Matthew 7, 1-2. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. I saw this last week. One of the main reasons the Bible says not to judge is because we're really bad at it. One of the main reasons the Bible says not to judge is because we are really bad at it the foundational point of, here's a big word, of Western jurisprudence is innocent until proven guilty. Like that's, the, that's one of the principles that our legal system is built on, innocent until proven guilty. But that's not the society that we live in, is it? We see a five-second video clip and we jump to all of these Conclusions. We think we know everything that happened based on a five second video clip. Only a few hours later, when the full video comes out and reveals everything else that happened, guess what? It's too late. Because we've already made our decision, our judgment based on the five seconds we saw. And our social media cycle demands that we take aside. Saying nothing is actually worse than joining in, because when you say nothing, it appears like you don't care about what people say. Each and every week on Twitter, I'm amazed by how Twitter functions, there's this constant drive directed at pastors, and it says this, If you don't preach about dot, dot, dot this week, you're not doing your job as a pastor. There's always things that pastors have to speak about, and if it weren't so bad for our culture and it weren't so bad for the church, it would be it would be comical. Because in my mind, I wonder how how do the churches that get caught up in this like how can you accomplish anything when you are when you are driven by the movement of the moment. By what, by what someone is telling you you ought to be talking about. I'm really hesitant to bring this up, but I'm going to do it. Can you believe this thing that happened with the Betsy Ross flag in like two days? This is not a political comment. Did you see how cuckoo that went? Like someone decided that the Betsy Ross flag was was racist, and and I'm not saying it is or it isn't. And like the entire like in two days, that was a pretty big swing. There are times where we look back on on God's laws. Here's a sidebar. There are times where we look back on God's laws and we judge them. There are harsh things from our perception of what we see in Scripture. And we think, how could God do this? Or how could a culture do that? And what's going on in here? And how presumptuous are we? How presumptuous are we to look back on something that was written 2,500 years ago and rail against it? More than 2,500, 3,500 years ago. What do you think people are going to say about our society a thousand years from now? how are they going to judge us? It's not even going to be a thousand years. In two days, like collectively, we just decided that a flag was racist. Collectively, what are we doing now that two days from now the culture is going to rail against We have to be so cautious about the things that we get involved in, especially on social media, because it allows us to be experts on things that prior to 30 seconds earlier, we didn't care anything about. And I'm not talking about big things. I'm not talking about justice things that we should care about or things that we should be concerned about. But some of the things that rile up our culture and our society only happen because the gossip machine works. And I say this during college football season, like when people ask me the question about when my favorite football team loses, which is pretty rare, I'll add. I won't say who my team is, but I mean, it's pretty rare when my team loses. My response is, you know what, I'm not going to get upset over what a 20-year-old does with a leather ball. Okay? Here's a a good practice for for us as a culture. Let's not get worked up over what a 20-year-old does or doesn't do with a football. Okay? We should be cautious when, when flipping on our screen in the morning to see whatever it is we should be raging about that particular day. Like when we allow that to drive us into anger and bitterness and rage. We ought to ask ourselves why we would allow something like this to have this much power over us because that's what this is. And remember, the very first commandment You shall have no other gods before me. And I think the problem for many of us when we wake up, this is the first place we turn. And I would challenge you and I would encourage you to not not give in to that. In our elder conversation about this text last week, one of the things that that we discussed was the person that, that we most frequently bear false witness about is ourselves. We most frequently bear false witness about ourselves. A few examples. Are you a compulsive exaggerator? It's easy to do this, isn't it? talk about how many hours of sleep we got or didn't get the night before, to talk about how hard we worked or how hard we didn't work, talk about how much we read the Bible. And I think a question that we can ask ourselves is, can we accurately represent ourselves even in the smallest details of our lives? Do we have self-awareness and are we able to communicate accurately the smallest details in our lives? Do you make promises that you have no intention of keeping? John Calvin says this, We delight in a pertained, poisoned sweetness experienced in ferreting out and in disclosing the evils of others, and let us not think an adequate excuse if in many instances we are not lying. Here's, like, let's bring this up 600 years in language. We love pointing out other people's flaws and failures. We take joy in pointing out the flaws and failures of others, don't we? Like secretly, when someone gets what they deserve, aren't we a little bit happy about that? And I love his next line. And just because it's true... Doesn't make it right. We should not delight when others fall. Paul says this Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Don't think you're better than you really are. See, we measure ourselves as a culture we measure ourselves by one another don't we well at least i'm not as bad as fill in the blank cuz that guy is a real jerk or my neighbor stayed up until 11:30 the other night shooting off fireworks that guy's a real jerk at least i'm not as bad as that see we are not the measuring stick for one another our measuring stick according to Paul is, by, is the faith that God has given us. That is what we ought to be concerned about. And here's the, here's the last part. We should do what we can to guard and advance our neighbor's good name. This commandment that we are talking about today like everyone before it and the one that's going to come after it is f- about far more than just not lying. And see, what, what we typically do with any of these commandments is, is we become the Pharisees. We reduce the commandment to, to a thin definition. Well, this one says, don't give false witness. That means I'm just not going to lie. But these things are about more than that. And that's why today, when I said, hey, we're going to talk about this one commandment and we're going to turn to another text, like this, the Bible is, is, a, complete, is a complete book. It's filling in the gaps for us. And, and we want to look out for the neighbors around us. We want to look out for their name because, because if someone was talking bad about you, if someone was ruining your reputation, and some of you live in this space, like we all have lived in this space at one time or another as human beings, wouldn't you want someone to say, you know, I know that person, and that, that doesn't sound right. Like my experience of that person it just doesn't match up with what it is that you're saying. So our role then is not just don't say bad things about people, but the better question is how can I protect my neighbor's name? How can I look out for the reputation of others? And again, because the unity of believers matter to Jesus, that ought to start with us. When we see others growing in the Holy Spirit when we see others growing in their relationship with Christ, what we ought to do is we ought to take a moment and we ought to say something about that. We ought to talk to them about that. We ought to honor them for what God is accomplishing in their lives. And this is why a few weeks ago when people served at VBS, we all clapped. We weren't clapping for those people. We were clapping for what God was accomplishing and was going to accomplish at our vacation Bible school. This is why we, why we celebrated pictures of a fence. It's a piece of metal. This is why we celebrated that as a church body, because these are things that God accomplishes. This is why we give out little trophies called Westie Awards last year at our Thanksgiving meal, so we can celebrate the things that God is doing here at Westway Christian Church. God gets the glory when we honor Others because of what he's doing. See, it's kind of the, in a way, it's like the antithesis of not feeling sympathetic for someone when they give their testimony. It's when someone receives an award or a praise from us as a church, we're not clapping for them, we're thankful for what God is doing. We're celebrating what God is accomplishing. We protect and advance our neighbor's name when we refuse to give or receive gossip about a brother or sister. When you hear something that's gossiping, our responsibility is to confront it and refuse to believe it and not participate in it. Here's a good starting point. Have you talked to him or her about that? Again, radical concept. I know these these are things that happened prior to this. Okay, Have you talked to that person about that? This really sounds like you need to have a conversation about this. And if the answer is no, then, then our, like we should be done with that conversation. Well, until you do, don't tell me about it. Go and talk to one another. We protect and advance our neighbor's name when we remember that Christians will sin and Christians will repent of sin. Just because we praise people does not mean that we overlook their sin. It means that we expect them to be in a state of repentance. Each one of us are real sinners experiencing the love of a real God through Jesus as our real Savior. And as Christians, we have the right to know that we are living in a state of repentance. We have a right to know as a Christian body that we're learning and growing. This means that we have to demonstrate the same level of mercy and grace and love that God gives to us. See, God is so rich in mercy and grace that even though we were repulsive to him, this was our natural state. Our sins separated us from God. God. And even though we were repulsive to him, he flipped his orientation and he came near to us so that we would be attracted to him. This was his work. We live out this command not just by obeying the negative but by doing the positive. When we remember that others are made in God's image and we act accordingly. Here's Philippians 2. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Can you imagine what what our church body, the unity that would be demonstrated by our church body if we considered others better than ourselves? The people that we disagree with, the people that we don't get along with, the people that we avoid when they walk in the door on a Sunday morning. Can you imagine what our church body would be like if we considered other people better than ourselves? Can you imagine what our church would look like when we reached out to people that are different than us, that sin differently than us if we considered them? Boy, that would be a challenge, wouldn't it? To consider them better than ourselves. If you are a Christian this morning, here's what we need to understand God's calling us to live differently than the world in every aspect of our lives. These commands and the way Jesus fulfilled them, they're not suggestions, they're not recommendations. They're not. I really think this would be a better way if you lived your life, so why don't you try this, like Jesus as my life coach? These are commands. These are kingdom expectations. This is what God expects of us, is to have a proper orientation towards people and to be attractive to them. Christians, which kingdom do you want to be a part of? Which kingdom do you want to join? And this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. Because what God is giving us, in a non-life-coachy way, is a pathway forward to the kind of society that we all want to live in, that we would all rather live in. And I want to tell you, I I don't care who you vote for. Your perceived perfect Culture and society and country is not going to come if we all vote for the same person. If, if our answer is, if we could only elect this person, then our problems would be over, you're wrong. I love you, and it's wrong. And we know that. We know this. It comes to the power of a changed heart. And that's what Jesus is after in all of our lives. And, and this room is filled with people who have had changed hearts, who have had a changed orientation and are connected to Jesus because of that changed heart. Let's pray. God, I thank you for for your willingness to change your orientation to us and to send your son Jesus so that we can be in relationship with him so that we can be changed. I pray, God, that we would look out for the well-being of our neighbors, that we would look out for the well-being of the names of others, especially in the household of faith, beginning in the household of faith. I would ask God that we would remember that people are watching what we say and our bearing of false witness goes far beyond a lie in a courtroom. It goes to the way that we live our lives because you have called us to witness for you. And we want to be true witnesses of what your sacrifice is did for every single one of us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.